Welcome back to the uh, to Monarch Bay. Um, is that noise that we're just hearing since we haven't started? Fine. I wouldn't ask about it normally. Is that? It's there. What is it? It's a plane. A plane. Single engine aircraft. It's coming so low. It looks as though it's actually attacking. Attacking. Yes. All right. CBS. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, well, we'll Maybe the American people aren't as soft, uh, or let me say, are not as susceptible to media brainwashing as some of us have thought. I do know this. If a president, when the tough calls have to be made, doesn't take his case to the people over the heads of the media, if necessary, he is going to be chopped down. Well, maybe, maybe you should have been president of a network or, uh, or chairman of the Washington Post. Do you feel you've had more power? Oh, yes. The greatest concentration of power in the United States today is not in the White House. It isn't in the Congress, and it isn't in the Supreme Court. It's in the media. It is too concentrated in too small a circle, particularly in the television area, in the networks. It's too much. It's too much power, and it's power that the Founding Fathers would have been very concerned about. And I think it's nonsense, nonsense and hypocritical, frankly, for those in the media, after they dish it out, to say, oh, he's trying to destroy freedom of the press, he's trying to repress us, because now and then he says a story is inaccurate, or a story is unfair. That was Richard Nixon talking to my dad in 1977, before the World Wide Web, before widespread cable TV. But network TV was perhaps at its most influential. Over the prior decade, it had utterly transformed the relationship between politicians and the media. You know how they say that history repeats itself? Well, my dad had a front row seat to this particular moment in American history, and it feels so much like today. I think the American people have a better shot at electing a president on live television where they can see and hear him. I'm not saying that the politicians don't attempt to bring a little pressure in the bureaucrats. They certainly do. It's a danger. And like the whole point is just that politics and show business are becoming confused. I'm bringing you some of my favorite tapes from my dad's archive of over 10,000 interviews. For this episode, we uncovered a series of fascinating tapes that address the balance of power between politicians and the media. Really, the executive branch had escaped from the constraints of the Constitution, truth, the reality, uh, law. We'll hear from Richard Nixon, Walter Cronkite, Daniel Ellsberg, and an interview with Roger Ailes that's not been broadcast since it first aired over 50 years ago. I'm Wilfred Frost, and these are the Frost Tapes. Episode six, Power and the Media. I mean, is it possible for huge things to be concealed? Yes, I think it is. I think this is the job of the press to uh, uncover as much of that as we possibly can.
He's a national institution, there's no doubt about it. The one and only welcome to Mr. Walter Cronkite. So there's no doubt people like you a lot more than some of the news. <laughs> I don't doubt that. I mean, I, I wouldn't have to be liked very much for them to like me better than the news. <laughs> How are you feeling? Walter well, Cronkite, a towering figure in broadcast journalism who would later be referred to as the most trusted man in America. At the time he sat down with my dad to have this conversation in 1969, he'd been hosting the CBS Evening News, the first ever half-hour nightly news program, for six years. Cronkite played a key part in the ascendance of television as the primary news source for the majority of Americans. Walter, is there one thing, one wish you have for the medium of television or broadcasting? Is there anything about it that particularly worries you now? Or any, is there as much freedom as you would like? Is there as much... Oh, uh, freedom, yes, I think. Uh, I think, David, uh, one of the things that... Uh, disturbed me is that it's very hard to convince people that we have the freedom we do have, quite honestly, in news at any rate. I can't speak for the entertainment area of the business, uh, but uh, in our area of news, really, I mean, I've worked in newspapers and press services, uh, it's been in this business all my life, in news, and I have never known the freedom that we have in television news. We have no advertiser pressure, we have no political pressure that works. I'm not saying that the uh, Politicians don't attempt to bring a little pressure, and the bureaucrats, they certainly do. It's a danger, but uh, it hasn't worked. How do you find, since your news must be a tremendous focus, how does an unsuccessful bit of pressure get applied? Oh, we get the, uh, we get the call from high officials, people who we know in government, uh, in the bureaus, a senator, a senator's office, uh, who says, gee whiz, did you really have to do that? Uh, you know, and, and uh, that didn't help the country any, the way you handled that story, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, an attempt, at, uh, I suppose, in a kind of a subtle way, an appeal at, uh, to patriotism and therefore a sort of an intimidation. But it doesn't work. I don't think it works with any of us. Uh, I'm not speaking for myself alone. I, I think that most newsmen uh, have long since become used to that sort of thing. The newspaper man suffers it all the time, too. Mm. And uh, well, that's the professionalism of our job, is to be sure that we do not buckle under such pressure. What would you like to change in the world? People. <laughs> that's a lifetime's work. It is, indeed. I wish we could all love each other. Sounds, like, sounds hippie, I guess, but uh, gosh, I wish we could. Uh, they're, so much petty, pettiness in the world today. It, it, we, we worry about things that we need not worry about. We, we exercise ourselves about things we need not get exercised about. We rub each other the wrong way. We're going to have to learn to live together pretty quickly, you know. We can't uh, any longer believe in those wide open spaces with every man with a gun on his hip, you know, and riding his own little piece of range. That's, that's not going to be good enough in our future. Walter Cronkite, thank you very much for being here. Dad had a number of America's leading newsmen as guests on The David Frost Show. 
And when I look back at those interviews and Dad's approach to them, I wonder whether he invited them because he wanted to learn from them, in particular how not to buckle under government pressure. Here's Dad in 1971 talking to Harry Reasoner, a TV journalist for CBS and ABC News and the founder of 60 Minutes. Do you think there's any danger? I mean, there you are as a newsman and people write about the possible dangers of repression. Do you think there's any danger of repression of news in America? Sure there is. There always has been. I don't think it's any worse now than it ever was, except that the country has been more excited about issues and more divided. And also, I think television has made has been more powerful than uh, any previous kind of journalism. But it's the same thing. No, Nobody in authority ever really liked journalism, but it's a, a sloppy business. It's, it's a matter of accommodating a lot of, a lot of good ideas, a lot of conflicting ideas, and meanwhile letting the journalists bumble along. Let them make their mistakes, let the press lords rule for a while, let, uh, let television be good for the dramatic, but keep the government out of it, keep any kind of control out of it, and sooner or later you will come, come up with something beautiful like uh, the London Times or the ABC Evening News. <laughs> and closing bell on CNBC too, of course. TV is very bad for children. Do you think TV is very no, bad? No, I think it's very good for them. I think TV has really done more to help people than anything else. Never before have we had so many people who knew so much which is at the moment part of our problem, but eventually could be part of the solution. What's the division between the way... Reasoner makes an interesting point that people were coming to know so much. At that very moment, TV was just overtaking newspapers as the main source of information, and Americans were having more and more choice of where they could get their news. Of course, today, knowing the influence of the internet and social media, it almost feels quaint. But it seems Reasoner had his finger on the pulse that perhaps the biggest problem wasn't political pressure, but a fracturing of the media landscape. This is something Dad talked about with another newsman, Chet Huntley of the popular NBC News program, The Huntley-Brinkley Report. And what he said was downright prophetic. This age is sometimes referred to as the space age, or the nuclear age, or whatever. But I would like to suggest that this may be the information age. And I think it poses a terrible, terribly difficult problem for democratic societies. With all this mass of information which is available, it is there, but how do we transmit it to all of the population so that they will be able to absorb it and make decisions, or are we going to develop an elite which is only capable of absorbing this information and acting upon it? And I think it's the big issue of our time. I think it's a very dangerous age, actually, because at least a hundred years ago, people didn't know what was going on, but they kind of knew they didn't know what was going on. But today we're in a dangerous age where we all think we know what's going on, but we don't. In the early days of TV's ascendance, some politicians were less aware of how to master it as a medium to reach voters. In 1960, Richard Nixon's presidential ambitions had famously been sunk by the unflattering eye of a live TV camera. My appearance on television, I can't do anything about my face. I've tried, but there it is. And people have got to, no makeup man can cure it. Uh, I think all of, the, all of that, however, is rather beside the point. 
By 1968, Nixon knew that television was key to his second quest for the White House. Writer Joe McGuinness got access to Nixon's campaign and published a book called The Selling of the President 1968. In it, McGuinness describes the brave new world of political theatre, a world where marketers, advertisers and even comedy writers help turn politicians into smooth-talking TV personalities. And Dad interviewed McGuinness where he outlined how behind-the-scenes figures arguably controlled, or at least tried to control, what the American public sees and hears. Of all the uh, things you discovered, which of all the sort of tactics and so on most sort of surprised or interest you that you unearthed? Well, what interested me the most was the way that uh, these advertising men, these television experts, could first have convinced Nixon himself to rely almost totally upon television to, to get elected. Because if you think back to 1960 and 1962, uh, if there was one medium that was unfriendly to Richard Nixon, even more than the press, it was television. Uh, somehow in six years, he, he looked inside himself and figured if he was going to come back, he was going to have to come back through TV. And they told him then that what he was going to have to do was develop qualities of personality, or if not develop them himself, at least allow them to project qualities of personality that the American people wanted in a president. And uh, his advertising director listed among these uh, warmth, humor, uh, sense of compassion, Things which I think even Mr. Nixon's friends would not list chief among his virtues. <laughs> so what he did was he allowed them to make it appear as if he had changed his character simply through uh, sophisticated technical uses of television. Uh, a brief example, just to get specific, uh, he projects a cold image. He always seemed to be a cold person. This is the way people responded to him. So his advertising director said one thing we'll never do is we'll never put him all by himself in front of a TV camera, just sitting behind a desk talking, because this is a very cold way to, to deal with people. Always have him in situations, talking to other people, so we can take pictures of him communicating, having an interpersonal relationship, giving and taking, listening, nodding, you know, patting on the arm, you know, responding, warmth, humanity. And uh, the advertising director's own words in a memorandum to Nixon in November of 1967 were that these situations should look unstaged even if they're not. And then they proceeded to go to New Hampshire and stage some very unstaged looking situations. There are a lot of memorandums describing how, and I'll quote one briefly uh, from, from Raymond Price, who was a New York Herald Tribune editorial writer, now a White House speechwriter. And he said in 1967 in a memorandum that it's not what's there that counts, it's what's projected. And we must be very clear on this point that the response is to the image, not to the man. Now, this is Nixon's own man. This is not my accusation. And I think that there were some dishonest things done with Nixon, uh, that there are some differences between the man and the image, and that we never got a chance to vote for or against the man, but only for the image. However, I don't think this is unique. I don't think Richard Nixon's the first politician that ever thought of doing this. This is the point, really, one of the points that I wanted to raise that in the book. It seems to me that a lot of the sort of advertising agency type thinking. It seemed to me it underestimates on the one hand the voter and on the other hand the subject of the advertising. You I know, think that's very true. I mean in this case it was Richard Nixon but in another occasion it might be some other candidate. I mean, I mean do you believe that this sort of thing can work? I mean do you actually believe that the voter is influenced? Yeah I, I really do. I'm not trying to be flippant but I really believe that all the people got to vote for or against last year was the televised image of Nixon. I don't believe Richard Nixon ever really went out and faced the people. I don't think he ever displayed himself and his real feelings to them. We voted for or against him not having any fundamental idea 
what he felt about the most important issue of 1968. Dad, of course, enjoyed inviting guests with opposing views for a lively debate. So to spar with McGuinness, he brought on one of the key advisors of Nixon's campaign, Roger Ailes, who went on to become one of the most powerful men in media in America as the founder and CEO of Fox News. Welcome Joe McGuinness and Roger Ailes. Joe. Welcome back. Joe, you were with us before. Roger, welcome for the first time. Good to have you with us. Roger, let me turn to you first. Do you think through the book, the book is a fair book? Do you think it's no. fair to you or the president? No. Well, it may be fair to me. You, you asked two questions. As a fair book, I don't think so. I think it's a highly biased book. I think it's, you know, uh, Mr. McGinnis has his own opinion of it, uh, of what went on. Do you think it was a fair book, Jack? Well, I think it was a fair book. I don't think it was an objective book. And I never pretended that it was. See, Richard Nixon isn't really the point of the book. The point of the book is the way that electronic media can be so controlled in a political campaign that the viewer, who is also the voter, has no access to the candidate himself, but only to this very carefully controlled television image. What we're talking about is the way that Richard Nixon used controlled television. And by that, I mean he never appeared in front of a camera he hadn't paid for. Every Nixon appearance. That's not true. He did Until, he until did the, last, the, press. the last two weeks of the campaign over Frank Shakespeare's objections I'm because sorry, public did. outcry Actually, was, was so great. I Joe, that that's not absolutely inaccurate because he did, he did an interview. He did three even, things. Even before oh. the last two weeks, three or four months before that, he did uh, a completely ad lib uh, interview with me, for instance, for a program I did called The Next President. He didn't know the questions in or anything. In every city that he went into, the leading newscaster in that city had access to him for the newscast in an interview. Well, and this no, this isn't true, Roger. Well, it's not that, every city, I apologize, but on the, on in, the tour, in fact, most, of, most the of the cities, there are many newscasters in Cleveland, I can name, and in, in, well, in uh, uh, he did, California, I think Los you Angeles, would have, even his friends admit, did that. I mean, you would have to admit that uh, he ran a very carefully controlled media campaign. And well, now, it, that's the, a lot different than saying he never did anything yeah, except that I mean, was but, paid but, for. But, you, but that was very inaccurate to say he never did anything, because, I, I mean, I well, can say he did something. He and did Roger 14 did hours two. of live programming, which is significant, I think, too. And how much of that was paid for? How much? Well, uh, the 14 uh, hours of live programming was the same as Humphrey. It is paid political time and announced as such. 14 hours of paid political time. Of four, live in other words, programming in which he was the first man ever to go on live television in a presidential campaign and invite the opposition to question him. Now, invite the opposition. You picked the so-called opposition, Roger, and you made right. quite certain that it wasn't opposition. That's not were, true at all. Well, it is certainly true. In a series of live broadcasts called Man in the Arena, produced by Ailes, he'd essentially invented the televised town hall that's now an integral part of every presidential campaign. There was one man, and there were 10 panel shows done around the country with six or seven people on each panel. One man out of 10 shows, out of 70 questioners, asked what I would consider a hostile question. Well, out of all the panels, there and must that be was a that was a mistake. All right, now, uh, <laughs> out of 60 Americans who appeared on panels with Richard Nixon, there must be 60 around the country today who were selected, independents, registered Democrats, and Republicans. All of those people were available to the press immediately following the show, the press had access to them, and the press still has access to them. If the press, or if anyone, could go to any of those people and say, were you 
selected because you were going to ask a specific question about Richard Nixon? Were you told to ask a specific question? Were you told not to ask anything? Were you told that you could pursue into a second question? Were you told to ask the difficult questions? But the whole beauty of your technique is that you don't have to be that specific because you as an individual, as a television producer, understand television well enough to know that if you put six people, six amateurs, take six people out of this audience who are not professional questioners and put them in a studio with Richard Nixon, first of all, they're so nervous. They're so impressed with being on television with a presidential candidate. They ask their one question and they're so grateful to get it out without choking. <laughs> they're not about to go right, for an incisive uh, follow-up. Right, I want to say another thing. Now, wait a minute. I think the other dangerous thing about Joe's book is that it terribly underrates the American public. I think it's an anti-audience book. And he, he, and he says, I no, wait think, a minute, no, okay, these people ahead. are applauding against yeah. themselves. Because essentially, if you read the book, you find that what he's saying is, the American, at one point in there he says, television is not for ideas, print is for ideas. In other words, what he's saying, we need writers to interpret for us what a man on camera, live, can say to us. And I say that that is not true. I have specific well, examples. Then you disagree. Like then you, dis you disagree. With, who have misquoted you, and you, dis you disagree with, with Richard Nixon's own staff. Ray Price, who's his chief speechwriter, who wrote the inauguration address, also wrote a memorandum that appears in the back of this book in which he says that voters are basically lazy basically not interested in making an effort to understand what we're talking about. Therefore, we must appeal to them through their emotions, because the emotions are more malleable, closer to the surface, and easier roused. It's the Nixon you staff see, that underestimates the, people, the voter. I think the American people have a better shot at electing a president on live television where they can see and hear him. If they don't like what he's saying or if they don't think he's saying if something it's not, they can turn against. If it's television like this, if it's not controlled, if you and I can just talk and there's nobody favoring either of us, David is impartial, he's just here listening, he's talking. This is not a McGinnis commercial, it's not an Ailes commercial. But I object to the principle on which a presidential candidate can buy up all this airtime just to show commercials and can stay off with a few exceptions. And I'll accept your correction about the fact that he was on your show. But that was a very rare exception. And there were very few occurrences like that. And that's the kind of television I object to. I think this kind of television is great. <laughs> He's not going to get me arguing with that, is he? Yeah, I just I wanted to ask Roger something, uh, you know, not in a hostile way at all, but I'd just like you to explain. <laughs> no, really. I, after all, it's not to applaud now, whatever. During all these panel shows, uh, at, the, at the end of them, like at the end of the Chicago show, which was the first one, you had had an assistant in the control booth uh, timing each of Mr. Nixon's answers with a stopwatch. It's true. Testing, you know, getting the time of each answer to each question. And at the end of the show, you produced a memorandum which, uh, which said that we have to vary the length of the answers because too many of the answers were of approximately the same length. And this is bad television. That some of the answers are, are too long and should be, should be trimmed down for the sake of a better television production. And like the whole point of the book is just that politics and show business are becoming confused. And I wonder what does uh, varying the length of the answers have to do with a man expressing his principles uh, and beliefs and feelings in a political campaign? It's television is a fast-paced medium. You can put everything that you see on the Huntley-Brinkley report into one column of the New York Times. However, on camera, in two and a half minutes, or in four minutes, or whatever, uh, the attention span of the audience, your, your job is to achieve audience and to get them to understand how you feel about an issue. But, but in two are, and a half are, minutes... Aren't you underrating the audience by saying that they can only have an attention span of two and no, a half minutes? No, not at all. Uh, they, they're 
used to seeing it. Mr. Humphrey, for instance, gave an 11-minute answer during the campaign in which it got to the point where it was, uh, he wasn't sure what the question was anymore. Uh, so the people want to know how they feel about that. And if you're going to have a question and answer session and give people a chance to ask questions, you must move it along because the hour moves very quickly as we're finding out right here. You said I at one point, and you're quoted as saying in the book, Roger, this is the way they'll all be elected forevermore. The next guys up will have to be performers. Did you say Which, it, and do you feel it? Well, yeah. The people will not accept a candidate who comes on television and stumbles. If he comes into their living room and falls on the rug, they probably won't vote for him. So he should have the confidence of knowing that when a camera's staring at him or he's using a microphone, he knows how to do it with confidence and uh, look good. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if he has confidence, why do you always have to buy the time and have the producers and technicians always working for him? Well, now you're into a whole concept, and I hear your piano, and that, which means... Uh, and because Roger, because Roger Ailes is a television producer, he knows that piano <laughs> means we've got to take a break. Roger and Joe, thank you very much for being with us. Thank we'll you. be right back with John Hartford and Troy Donahue. Dad's interviews with Richard Nixon in 1977 are best known for Nixon's famous and unexpected apology to the American people. More on that next episode. But what's often overlooked were Nixon's comments on the power and influence of the media. Why do you think that the media and the Eastern establishment press, etc., why were they so, uh, as you've described, sort of, well, prejudiced against you, do you think? Well, <laughs> I could use one of... Uh, Dean Acheson's uh, famous stories uh, that uh, he told about Johnson. As he said, uh, I was once talking to Johnson about all these demonstrators and so forth, and, and Johnson was up in the air because here were the three television sets over there, and they were all giving him hell. And I said, Mr. President, I said, what's the matter with you? And Johnson said, look what I do for these people. He says, I, I give them barbecues. I said, I see them. I talk to them. I've been good to them. And uh, Atchison said, I said to him, Mr. President, the trouble is you want the press to love you, and they won't, because you're not a very lovable man. And I suppose that one of the reasons that the press's attitude toward me through the years has been at times uh, not too favorable, <clears throat> using again your British understatement, <laughs> uh, that I'm not a very lovable man. I don't believe in the buttering up calling them in, sucking around, and being hypocritical. If they ask a nasty question or a tough question, I try to give us not a nasty answer, but a tough answer. I don't do that because I want to kick them around. But on the other hand, uh, I don't believe that with the enormous power that particularly the television press has in America today, a power that affects people within a matter of 24 to 48 hours, uh, whoever is the leader of this country has to defend himself and defend his policies and to use every resource that he can to get his point of view across. Or otherwise, these people who were not elected by anybody and who are paid very well, most of them, particularly in television, they run the country. When you told that story about uh, not being very lovable, uh, you know, maybe it's because I'm not very lovable or whatever. Mm -hmm. Presumably, that means that something 
you feel about you has not come across in public? Because presumably you feel you're lovable in private. No, 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 no. I'm, uh, I'm basically, let's face it, uh, we have to realize, too, that the uh, first everybody is a potential prima donna, particularly people with brains uh, and people who get to the highest rung in their profession. Now, in the press, there's nothing that they, of course, like more uh, than, frankly, to be catered to, to be praised, frankly, to uh, be pampered. Nobody probably ever tried to treat the no. press any better no, than sorry. Johnson. I didn't. But my point is, the reason they were against him, most of them, and the reason most of them were against me, was not because we were not lovable, but because they were against what we stood for. So that's the way it is. As Roger Ailes mentioned, Nixon wanted to take his appeal directly to the American people to reach what Nixon coined the silent majority. The feeling is that well, all of those that were supporting President Nixon, there were farmers and uh, hard hat workers and people that wear flags in their lapels, people that have very little education, but that people that went to the better colleges and universities, people who uh, read the best newspapers and so forth and uh, listened to the right columnists and that they were all on the other side. In other words, that the intellectual, intelligent elite, the better people, were all against me. And the only support I had, and that this happened to be the so-called silent majority, were people who really didn't know any better uh, and who had been moved by what was, I must admit, an emotional appeal, a patriotic appeal, but the right appeal. It shows that maybe the American people aren't as soft, uh, uh, or let me say, uh, are not as susceptible to media brainwashing as some of us have thought. I do know this. Uh, if a president, when the tough calls have to be made, doesn't take his case to the people over the heads of the media, if necessary, he is going to be chopped down. And that is why Johnson, frankly, was driven out of office. If Johnson had taken his case to the people as I took my case to the people on Vietnam, Johnson would have won in 68. And I would be out here practicing law in California. But the president has such massive powers, really, that dwarf the, the three networks, don't they? <laughs> the point is, the president can go on maybe once a month and get a big audience. Maybe twice a month. If he goes on more than that, the Hooper rating really goes down. Your answer, of course, could be, or anybody's answer could be, well, the president should go on every day then. Uh -uh. That cheapens the coin of the realm insofar as uh, uh, people wanting to hear the president. I mean, they'd rather tune in uh, Bonanza. I like Bonanza, I don't know, maybe I'm old fashioned. They're running reruns now, but they're still pretty good. Well, maybe, maybe you should have been president of a network or, uh, or chairman of the Washington Post. Do you feel you've had more power? Oh, yes. At the present time, let's talk about power a moment. I think, I think it's very significant. It's, it's significant in your country, uh, and it's very significant in America. The greatest concentration of power in the United States today is not in the White House. It isn't in the Congress, and it isn't in the Supreme Court. 
that's in the media. And it's too much because it is too concentrated in too small a circle, particularly in the television area, in the networks, it's too much. It's too much power and it's power that the Founding Fathers would have been very concerned about because the Founding Fathers balanced the power. The presidency balances, the Congress balances the Supreme Court. And when you have balanced power, you have checks each on the other. There is no check on the networks. There is no check on the newspapers. Now understand, no. I am not advocating censorship, but I would advocate, for example, proliferation. I would advocate cable television. Uh, I would advocate, and I do stand for, the right of a president, a vice president, or a member of Congress, instead of taking an unmerciful beating and an unfair beating from network commentators or columnists in newspapers, if they are important, to have the right to fight back in the same medium, be given equal time, I think he should. And I think it's nonsense, nonsense and hypocritical, frankly, for those in the media, after they dish it out, to say, oh, he's trying to destroy freedom of the press, he's trying to repress us, because now and then he says a story is inaccurate or a story is unfair. Let's just not have all this sanctimonious business about the poor, repressed press. I went through it through all the years I've been in public life, and I've ne they've never been repressed as far as I'm concerned. I don't want them repressed, but believe me, when they take me on, or when they take any public figure on, Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, I think the public figure ought to come back and crack them right in the puss. Nixon constantly worried about his image, and he hired H.R. Haldeman, a former advertising executive, as his chief of staff. Nixon's administration created the White House Office of Communications to help craft a polished image of the president, foregoing spontaneous interviews and opting for limited, orchestrated press appearances. He also attacked any negative information that he believed could impede his political agenda. You must keep up the attack on the media, Nixon told his special counsel. You've got to keep destroying their credibility. Before even Watergate, one of the most remarkable stories of press intimidation occurred during the leak of the Pentagon Papers. The papers revealed that the US government had been hiding certain information about its involvement in Vietnam from the media, and by extension, the American people. The most damning report showed that four consecutive presidential administrations, from Truman to Johnson, had knowingly and intentionally misled the public. In 1971, the papers were leaked to the New York Times. The Nixon administration soon moved to stop publication, but the Supreme Court would eventually overrule them. Meanwhile, the man who leaked the papers to the press, a military analyst named Daniel Ellsberg, was charged for theft and conspiracy under the Espionage Act. The Nixon White House began a campaign to smear Ellsberg's reputation. What Ellsberg really boils down to, I mean, the discrediting and all the rest, what it boils down to, I didn't want to discredit the man as an individual. I couldn't care less about the punk. I wanted to discredit that kind of activity, which was despicable and damaging to the national interest. 
But Nixon did try to discredit Ellsberg as an individual. He ordered his men to break into the office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist to photograph his medical information and leak it. They wanted to sow distrust in Ellsberg by painting him as mentally unstable. In the midst of all this, Ellsberg came on national television and talked with my dad. And now we welcome to join us a man who needs no introduction, whatever. It's just about a year ago, it was last June, that uh, the Pentagon Papers were published. And now we talk about that subject 12 months later. Will you welcome to join us the man who provided the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg. <laughs> what was the most shocking thing about reading the Pentagon Papers yourself that led you to the conclusions to take the steps you did. It was fashionable always to say that it was impossible for presidents to know all the facts, but it seems that you drew the conclusion that they did know the facts but didn't act on them. I mean, That's true. It was um, startling to me to discover between 67 and 69, the time when I was officially working on the papers, to discover that the presidents that I'd tried to inform to bring the truth to had known uh, adequately what the truth was. It changed your whole perception of what the nature of the problem was. The president was part of the problem, it turned out. I'd always thought of myself as serving the president, like most people in the executive branch. Now it looked as though um, something like an executive coup had taken place, and um, not overnight, and not just by Nixon, in terms of democracy, that really the executive branch had escaped from the constraints of the Constitution, of truth, the reality, of law, and was um, out there pursuing really monarchical kinds of ambitions. The situation was one very much like those that the people who fought the American Revolution thought they were trying to escape. And really that's the lesson of the Pentagon Papers to me, that a succession of presidents have come to think of the American public as an adversary to be tricked, to be manipulated, to be lied to. Uh, for their own good, perhaps. Can you pinpoint the time, the day, or whatever, the week in your life when you first of all decided that these Pentagon Papers that you'd had access to must be seen by other people and mm -hmm. the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and so on? I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't thought it was necessary uh, not to punish people, not to redress things, but to end the war. So it was the information that I got that this president had chosen, basically, to continue our war had chosen to continue the practice of misleading the public about it, uh, that I really thought um, the only thing that can be done is to change the environment in which the president acts from an ignorant one, from a misled one, to an environment of a uh, sovereign public that understands this past process. The press was your last resort, was it? Uh, ultimately, I had to remember that uh, the concept we invented, really, uh, 200 years ago, was that the people are sovereign. Uh, that parliament is not sovereign, the monarch is not sovereign, but the people are sovereign. And that the people who should be informed were not the president's advisors, in the end, not even the Senate, uh, but the people who would have to come to exert their own rights and powers. Finally came the press publication. That reaction, you've now had a year to absorb that. To what extent has the reaction been approving? To what extent have people called you a hero and a traitor? The reaction was very specific. It was, um, thank you. Uh, come up to me on the street and they say, uh, I appreciate what you did for me. Well, at first I was a little puzzled by that. And then I thought to myself, what they're telling me is uh, very good. They're telling me that they think as Americans, they still have the power to act on information about what their government is doing. 
and what we as a country are doing in the world. Uh, if they felt entirely impotent and apathetic, if they didn't care what we were doing, then I think the painful news in the Pentagon Papers that presidents had treated them contemptuously, had fooled them, had bypassed Congress, they would feel a thanks for nothing. You know, who needed that? Our lives are sad enough already. It seems to me that when someone comes to me and says, uh, thank you, I needed that information. He has a feeling that he has powers left. I think he's right, and I'm glad he knows it, that we have a lot of freedom left to use in this country. The publishing of the Pentagon Papers did not lead to an immediate end to the Vietnam War as Ellsberg had hoped, but it did significantly increase public opposition to the war and more broadly damaged trust in the government, some could argue forevermore. Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, would say, quote, The implicit infallibility of presidents, which has been an accepted thing in America, is badly hurt by this, end quote. To end this episode, I'd like to return to a moment before the Pentagon Papers and before Watergate, a prescient moment in Dad's conversation with Walter Cronkite in 1969. Do you feel, in fact, in general, not, not just from governments and so on, that you and the people who you're able to pass on the news to, that we really know what's going on? I mean, is it possible for huge things to be concealed? Yes, I think it is. David. I think this is the job of the press, this is the generic press, including television and radio, to uh, uncover as much of that as we possibly can, to be sure that these things aren't concealed. I don't think they can be concealed forever. I think they will come out, the truth will out, but will it come in time to, to be uh, for the proper amelioration of the circumstance? I don't know. Next time on The Frost Tapes, the most viewed political interview of all time, Frost Nixon Revisited. You use the term obstruction of justice. The statute doesn't require just an act. One must have a corrupt motive. I was trying to contain this thing politically. I did not have a corrupt motive. These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeartRadio and Paradine Productions. Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeartMedia is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Etor. Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch with help from Abu Safar and Michelle Lands. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Ears Productions and Morgan Lavoie of iHeartMedia. 